Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including house churches, gathering times, and other resources, please visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Steve Fowler. If you've ever traveled the world, you've likely come to the conclusion that people eat weird stuff. Take, for instance, the delicacy of tuna eyeball in Japan. Apparently, you need to steam them, put a little garlic sauce on them, and they are ready to consume and taste like squid. Uh, No, thank you. In Laos, you can get a great bowl of white ant soup. I'm told that it tastes a little like shrimp. Canada serves up the specialty of jellied moose nose. You boil that moose nose down with onion and spices, you cool it, you pick out the moose hair, you boil it down again to save the broth, and you let it set into a glutinous jelly. Yum. Anyone up for a peanut butter and moose nose jelly sandwich? In England, stargazy pie is a traditional meal eaten on December 22nd. Apparently, there's some legend about a Brit who saved his village by sailing out in a storm and making the fish catch of a lifetime. A pie was made. A pie with little fish heads sticking out. Look, we eat weird stuff, and we could offend our senses all day long with the examples of weird things people eat. But at the end of the day, a little moose nose jelly isn't going to hurt you, neither will a squid-tasting eyeball. People have eaten weirder things. Uh, Maurice Sendak, author of Where the Wild Things Are, once got a card from a little boy named Jimmy. Jimmy had drawn a picture in the card, and Sendak thought it was charming, so he sent a card back with a hand-drawn picture of a wild thing in it. He wrote, Dear Jimmy, I loved your card. Later, Sendak got a letter back from Jimmy's mother, who wrote, Jimmy loved your card so much, he ate it. Sendak said, That to me was one of the highest compliments I've ever received. He didn't care that it was an original Maurice Sendak drawing or anything. He saw it, he loved it, he ate it. As we move deeper into our study of the book of Revelation in our series that we're calling Overcomer, chapter 10 contains a weird dining moment for John. Let me read Revelation chapter 10 verses 1 to 2 and verses 8 to 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So... I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This is God's holy word. So let's see if we can make sense of this for a moment. Uh, Hopefully this eating the scroll passage is familiar to you. 
Ezekiel was told to eat a scroll. You'll find this in Ezekiel chapter 3, and that story helps interpret why John is eating paper. Jeremiah also ate God's word. Jeremiah 15 verse 16 says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. The sweetness in Jeremiah's, Ezekiel's, and now John's mouth is our own personal experience with God's word. That's the whole thing about the sweet-tasting scroll. You heard the gospel, and you believed. You repented, and you celebrated. You've been adopted into the family of God by grace through faith. This is the sweet good news of the kingdom. I mean, I've thought about this this week. I wonder what it would be like to eat the Bible, the Word of God, metaphorically speaking, of course. What would it be like to eat the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, Jesus' parables? I imagine each of them might taste a little different, having their own unique texture. The Ten Commandments would be brown rice, a dietary staple, but nutritious too. The Beatitudes would go down sweet and smooth with their words of blessing, but then we might find they have a little kick to them, the kind that sneaks up on you. The parables will be sure to be nice and chewy. You have to put your molars into action on those to get at the heart of what is being said so you can metabolize truth. To eat the scroll is to ingest it, to absorb it. Why? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. You see, Scripture is first received as information, but it is information that leads to realignment through repentance. Now, here's the point of John eating a scroll that tastes sweet. You and I are called to metabolize the Scriptures. To metabolize the scroll or the scriptures is to eat it for the purpose of walking in repentance. You see, you repented when you gave your life to Jesus. But are we metabolizing the word to the point that the nutrition of the word is giving energy and strength to our walking daily in repentance? See, repentance is not a one-time experience. Repentance is a change of thinking that leads to a change of affections or desire that leads to a change of behavior. It's a daily rhythm we walk in. Repentance is not just a one-time experience. We have to ask ourselves, are we obeying what we are eating? Are we getting softer to the Spirit or harder as we read God's Word? Friends, we can't fool ourselves here. Jesus is telling us in great painful clarity that there will be those who stand before him one day who will fully expect to walk into the kingdom of heaven, but will be turned away by some of the scariest words in scripture. Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who break God's laws. And anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Matthew chapter 7, verses 23 to 24. Jesus is expecting us to, yes, hear his word, but then to obey. And as one author or pastor has said, Jesus does not identify with everyone who identifies with him. Jesus clearly states that he identifies with those who listen and obey. These are the people he knows. 
See, to obey is to see the fruit of walking daily in repentance. And the only way to see the fruit is to eat and metabolize it so we can be empowered and energized to walk in deep repentance. This is what it means to eat the scroll. Here's a question for you. Is the scroll or the word of God softening you or is it hardening you? Are you eating the scroll? Are you eating the word as to make it personal and then listening to Jesus so as to metabolize your obedience? I feel like for me, these are important questions to answer. But let's not forget, the scroll is sweet in Ezekiel's and Jeremiah's and now John's mouth, but it's bitter in his stomach. Why is that? Well, remember that we've been talking about the seals and the trumpets. These are the judgments of God. Both Brian and Jennifer broke this down for us in the last couple weeks. And now we have an interlude of sorts prior to more judgment. Bowls of judgment are to be poured out. And God has been trying to get humanity's attention through the seals and trumpets, but we haven't been paying attention. Jennifer mentioned this passage of scripture last week and said, Revelation 9.20 says, But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. We have to see that in these seals, the trumpets, in the bowls that are to come, that God's heart is that people would turn to him. Jennifer did an amazing job helping us to see the mercy framework in God's judgment. But friends, humanity is not repenting which sets Revelation 10 up to be understood that the church is now being called into action. We are to eat the scroll. We are to eat it and to listen to the words we are reading and to metabolize it in such, metabolize it in such a way that we walk in obedience. It is sweet, but then in our stomach, it's bitter. Why? Well, Revelation 10 ends with a commission to John to go and preach, to go prophesy. John, declare the word. There is an end coming. The manifestation of judgment is not enough. People need to hear. And we must proclaim the need for repentance to all nations. This is where it gets bitter in our stomachs. You see, people don't want to hear the prophetic message of repentance. The people John would preach to didn't want to hear this message. That's why he's on exile in Patmos. And friends, this is why the early church is suffering. When my kids were younger, I helped coach their basketball teams and soccer teams. And I helped manage a baseball team uh, that my son Chase was on. You know, it's amazing um, how people who could be hundreds of feet away from home plate can see balls and strikes better than the umpire who's uniquely positioned right behind the plate. They, they cry out when a ball is called strike and they, they question the umpire's ability to see. I mean, are they blind? Or they, the ump who's behind second base or right by first base calling safe or out? People become very angry when they think the runner was safe when they were out. I actually think it would be a wise thing for all of us to get behind the plate and call balls and strikes at some point in our life. I think it would help us show a little bit of appreciation for those who volunteer to give their time to ref a basketball game. Because what you learn is that, you know what? 
people don't like calls that expose shortcomings. I remember when I was refing a basketball game in, yes, a prison. It was a maximum security prison. I, being part of a basketball team, had to have a whistle in my mouth and call fouls and all the other things that people are doing wrong when they play the game of basketball. The, the prison guards were actually in cages holding shotguns. They were fully protected. I was out in the open. And let me tell you something. I can tell you from firsthand experience, people do not like the message of a shortcoming. They don't want to have a foul called on them. Sometimes it can get painful. Look, this is John's call. John, the word of God is sweet in your mouth. Your personal experience is great, but guess what? You're called to metabolize the scripture so that you can live prophetically. And people don't like to hear that they need to repent. They don't like to hear that their shortcomings are being exposed. And the response will be bitter for the early church. They will suffer. Yet for some, the message of repentance will be sweet. For others, it sours them. They don't want to hear the message. This is the early church's commission, and friends, it is ours as well. The seals and the trumpets are being ignored, and now it's time to declare the message that we are sinful and we need to repent. The prophetic spirit is not a judgmental spirit, friends. It's remembering who we were when we didn't know Jesus. It's a message that's proclaimed with a broken spirit, a contrite heart. Yet you and I are called to metabolize the scriptures for the purpose of living prophetically. We must metabolize these scriptures personally so we can do this and obey this call. This is the call in these last days. And let's just take a pause here for a moment. Let's let a little music play and ask ourselves these questions. Am I metabolizing the scripture? Am I just listening or am I listening and obeying? And let's live out this call together and process what Jesus may be saying to us. salvation and this hope will never fail 
sing this out. Oh, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross. The cross Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, Go and measure the temple of God in the altar. Count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague so as, as often as they wish. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. 
Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, Come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. Friends, this is God's holy word. If you've ever done a puzzle, you are probably aware of the strategy that most use to begin putting a picture together with their puzzle pieces. You look for all the straight straight edges and you find your four corners to get your perimeter put together and then start the job of working from the outside in. Revelation 11 is like one of those 1,000-piece puzzles that you may tackle on a vacation trip to the coast. Most scholars will tell you that this is one of the toughest chapters chapters to interpret. But let's find our key puzzle pieces and see if we can make sense of the picture that is coming together before us. I'm going to identify the pieces and then we'll do the work of putting them together towards the end to interpret the passage. Now, let me just add here that there are many interpretations to this chapter. Some see this as literal. uh, This is a literal two witnesses, a literal Moses and Elijah coming back. But let's remember that apocalyptic genre is full of symbolism, full of numbers that bear meaning. While that could be true, let's look at another option. Puzzle piece number one, the measuring of the temple. First, we know that this is not the actual temple in Jerusalem. That temple was destroyed in AD 70. The temple John is measuring is the church, and this is around AD 90, and you are not, you and I are now the temple of the living God, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. We are the temple of the living God. I will dwell with them and live among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. This measuring is sort of like one of those internet hyperlinks. It's a hyperlink to Zechariah chapter 2, verse 1, a similar situation of a measuring of a temple. It reads, Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, Where are you going? He answered me, To measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. While the angel was speaking to me, uh, while the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. The temple is, the temple is measured in the book of Zechariah for the purpose of protection. There will be growth and multiplication, and the city will be full and full of life again. But remember, Zechariah is written during the exile. This is really good news as Jews are going to resettle amidst people who threaten them. God will be a fire around them. He will protect them. Well, back to Revelation chapter 11, God is once again measuring the temple, the church, for the purpose of protection in a season of growth. Puzzle piece number two, 42 months. The number is a symbol. It's not a statistic. 42 months is 1,260 days. It's three and a half years or three and a half days. It's Time, times, and half a times. This number is found all through the Old Testament. 
For example, there were 42 stages of Israel's journey from Egypt to the promised land. See Numbers chapter 33. It's all laid out for us. Three and a half years is the number of years that Elijah prayed and it did not rain in Israel. There are 42 generations between Adam and Jesus. You will see this time frame of time, times, and half a times mentioned twice in the book of Daniel. 42 months is clearly a symbol. It's not a statistic. It's not to be taken literally, in my humble opinion. It stands for the whole time God's people, the temple, is in the world, caught in the crunch of clashing kingdoms. Puzzle piece number three. The two witnesses. They prophesy for 42 months and are clothed in burlap or sackcloth. Sackcloth is a sign of a prophet, but more importantly, it's the sign of repentance. The two witnesses wear the sign of repentance because, number one, they are living prophetically, speaking a message that calls for repentance, and number two, they are living in repentance. Remember what we have learned from chapter 10. Chapter 10 informs chapter 11, and helps us interpret this. These two witnesses are called two olive trees, and two lampstands is a reference to Zechariah again. But we have two witnesses, two olive trees, two lampstands. And remember that a lampstand has already been interpreted as a symbol for the church in chapter 1. There is a biblical principle that says the testimony of two is true. Never put a person to death on the testimony of only one witness. There must always be two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. You must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 17 says, Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. And then 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 Do not listen to anyone or any accusation against an elder unless it is confirmed by two or three witnesses. Many biblical scholars suggest that these two witnesses are a picture of a church speaking the truth under pressure in our world, full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, burning brightly with the fire of God. They mirror the ministry of Moses and Elijah as they move in in the power of the Spirit. That's puzzle piece three. Again, puzzle piece number one, the measuring of the temple. Puzzle piece number two, 42 months. Puzzle piece number three, two witnesses. Three more puzzle pieces, and we'll put them together. Puzzle piece number four, the beast. This beast comes from the abyss, which tells us that the origins of this critter are demonic. Humanity isn't the enemy. They are captive to the beast. But it is the beast who stirs the pot in his attempts to kill the church. Revelation 11 says the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them in the great city where the Lord was crucified, Jerusalem. The city is then described as Sodom in Egypt, and later it will be called Babylon, and then a picture of Rome and in other cities. Again, let's not forget that Jerusalem has already been destroyed, as John writes. John is not saying the two witnesses will be killed in the literal Jerusalem, The great city is any and every city that resists the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and persecutes Jesus' witnesses. Puzzle piece number five, the killed but then resurrected witnesses. 
In Middle Eastern cultures, it is an affront and a dishonor for a body not to be buried promptly. The beast seeks to dishonor the church, and there are seasons when it appears that Satan has won the day. Yes, the church goes through seasons where it appears there is little hope. The world celebrates, they throw parties, but the beast can't kill the church. She keeps coming back to life. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The last puzzle piece, puzzle piece number six, the earthquake. The earthquake destroys one-tenth of the city and 7,000 people die. Well, this sounds like really bad news, but stick with me here. It actually is really good news. See, John is doing some kingdom of heaven arithmetic here. A Revelation chapter 11, verse 13 is a hyperlink to other passages in scripture. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13, we read that God will save one-tenth and nine-tenths will fall. Revelation chapter 11, verse 13, one-tenth fall and nine-tenths survive. Amos chapter 5, verse 3, talks about a city of a thousand that will only have a hundred left living. Ten percent are saved, ninety percent fall. Revelation chapter 11, verse 13, ten percent falls. 90% are saved as only one-tenth falls. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, Elijah is depressed because only 7,000 faithful believers are left in all the land. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 13, it's 7,000 who die and 63,000 live and they give glory to God. Do you see what Jesus has shown John? He's reversed the arithmetic. 90% are saved and only 10% are lost. 63,000 are saved versus 7,000 being saved. And all of this is due to the faithful witness of the church who lives prophetically in the midst of suffering. Yes, the witnesses are killed, but because of the way they die, 90% of the city gives glory to God. Friends, We are talking about a massive revival in the cities of the world. Okay, let's put all the puzzle pieces together. That was a lot of information. Revelation chapter 11 is a picture of the church's role in the world. What are we to do in the midst of the struggle in our world? Well, we eat the scroll. We metabolize the scriptures so we walk in repentance. But then we preach repentance and we witness. Now, we're not defendants. We're not on trial. Jesus is. And as we give testimony to Jesus, we do this by walking in the way of the lamb, not the lion. The prophetic spirit is not a judgmental spirit. It's a humble spirit, words spoken from a broken and contrite heart, realizing that once we were lost as well. And friends, can I just say, this exact thing is happening in our world today. Cambodia was infamous for its killing fields. So many people were killed and murdered. And the church suffered intensely in these days as believers and pastors were executed. Paul Pot, the revolutionary leader of the Khmer Rouge, celebrated a perceived victory. The witnesses were killed. But friends, the church is being resurrected in Cambodia. 
Listen to this small example of this very thing happening. Auntie Ree, age 69, a loving mother of nine adult children, a fragile-looking, soft-spoken, gentle lady who suffered from many years of joint pains and other chronic illnesses, was running out of hope for recovery. Her devoted husband and concerned children had sacrificially sold off pieces of rice fields and other costly properties, including valuable livestock, so they could pay off her expensive medical bills. Concerned for her health, the family also sought help from various local medicine men, local witch doctors, but no help came their way. Finally, Re declared to her family, let me die. Save the remaining money for the children and the grandkids. Why waste all these expenses on me? I'm tired of living. Well, when believers from a nearby village heard about Re's sickness, they shared about the healing power of Jesus Christ. They offered to pray for Re and asked if she was willing to give Jesus a try. Re reluctantly agreed. A few days after being prayed for, the family noticed significant improvement in Ree's health. Encouraged by the outcomes, Ree's family invited the believers, please come again and tell us more about Jesus. They did. At the end of the visit, 19 people of Ree's immediate family prayed to receive Jesus Christ. A new Alliance Church was birthed there on October 23, 2020. As the weekly Bible studies took place, more people came to join the group. 32 new believers from the village were among the many who participated in a recent baptismal service. According to the most recent ministry reports from the local church leaders, Ree and her family remain steadfast in their decision to follow Jesus Christ, and they participate in the weekly worship services. To date, nine new churches have been planted in Cambodia during this COVID season. Friends, the gates of hell will not prevail against the burgeoning church of Jesus Christ. God is on the move. And John is revealing to us that as a people, if we'll eat the scroll and enjoy the sweetness of the scroll personally, and if we'll listen and obey and walk in repentance, we'll realize we're called to live prophetically in our world. And as we declare this message of repentance to our world, it, it will lead to bitter circumstances. But as we live prophetically, and as it seems like there is no fruit, there will be fruit as it happens in the early church, which by the way, one of the greatest revivals in the world will take place. It will happen again in the midst of suffering in the midst of a church who are walking in the way of the Lamb. Here's a couple ways that we can apply what we're hearing, and then I'll wrap things up. The first thing that's just pretty obvious, I just want to say, friends, it's time to eat the scroll and metabolize it. We must not only marinate in the Word, we must digest it and metabolize it in such a way that we walk in deep repentance. But here is where we need to do some soul-searching. Some of us who once loved the sweetness of the scroll aren't hungry anymore. We have such little appetite for the scroll because we're feeding on the things of this world. Our appetite for the delicacies of the world have suppressed our appetite for God. We are obese with the junk food of culture. And then we cry out that we're too busy, we're 
too tired. You don't know all I'm dealing with. I don't have time to eat the scroll and metabolize it. Yet at the same time, we eat, we consume, we feed on social media. We abide in the temple of escapism and worship the prophets of Netflix and Hulu and Disney+. Plus. We saunter in the dark hallways of the temple of sexual immorality as we stare at the naked prophets of pornography. We worship in the temple of consumerism and admire their prophets. I'm not saying having a streaming service is wrong. I have Netflix. I'm not anti-shopping. I mean, I have Amazon. I have an Amazon account. I clearly am against sexual morality, as God's word clearly reveals. What I'm simply trying to highlight is where we go to eat, to consume, and feed. It's no surprise we aren't hungry when we're feeding on so much junk food and giving little time to Bible reading and listening to Holy Spirit and memorizing scriptures so we can stay true to Jesus. Isn't this what Jesus relied on when Satan tempted him to give in to his human appetites? I mean, turn these stones into bread. Or to his human ambitions? Or for his need for affirmation? Friends, what's stealing your appetite for God? I'm telling you to repent. I know that's not a popular message. But it's a message of opportunity for you and for me, for us. Because we have a call on our lives. You and I are called to metabolize the scriptures for the purpose of living prophetically. There's some real practical ways to do this. Uh, we can do the soapies. If you remember our series in August, God on the Move, kids taught us about soaps. It stands an acronym. It stands for S stands for scripture, O stands for observation, A stands for application, and P stands for prayer. We read a passage of scripture. We notice what captures our attention. We make an observation. We make some personal application. Then we write a prayer. We're chewing on the word. We're meditating. We're processing it. We're digesting. We're metabolizing it for obedience. Jesus identifies with those who hear it and obey it. We can memorize scripture. The navigators for years published little cards that you can memorize scripture on. You can listen to scripture when you're driving. Uh, one of the books that I'm enjoying right now is written by Rich Velotis. It's called The Deeply Formed Life. The first third of the book is dedicated to metabolizing the scriptures. Interestingly enough, the next two sections are about seeking wholeness in a world that's broken sexually and seeking wholeness in a world that is broken down with racial injustice. I highly recommend the book as a read. Again, by Rich Velotis. It's called The Deeply Formed Life. Friends, one of the first ways we can respond to Revelation 10 and 11 is to eat the scroll, metabolize it for the purpose of living prophetically. The last thing I would say is simply this. We need to witness in the way of the Lamb. Friends, look at the life of Jesus. Look at the early church. Each relinquished power for the sake of reaching the lost. Jesus embraced suffering, and when he died, the world celebrated. The early church embraced suffering. The world celebrated in Colosseums as lions devoured our brothers and sisters. 
but the greatest revival known to the world at the time would take place against the backdrop of this torment. Friends, who are we sharing the message of repentance with? Are we willing to have that bitter feeling in our stomach as it's rejected? Or perhaps it'll be embraced. Who are you willing to suffer for? We don't witness in the arrogant way of the lion. We witness again in the broken spirit of the way of the lamb. With our conversation seasoned with grace, because you and I are called to metabolize the scriptures for the purpose of living prophetically. Let me pray for you. Lord, as family are listening to this talk as they go on a walk, or perhaps they're driving to or from work or squeezing a podcast in in the middle of a busy day, I ask that your spirit would cause these words to sink deep within our souls. Oh Lord, you're inviting us to take the scroll out of your hand and to eat it. And it is sweet. You've made a way for us to be forgiven of our sin, to have the shame and guilt lifted off of us. And for those of us who have embraced this message, what great news that is. We're family to you. Now we ask that your word would sink deep into our hearts and that we would metabolize it. Oh Lord, restore our hunger. May we be empowered by your spirit to repent to leave the empty hallways of temples of sexual immorality and temples of escapism and temples of consumerism and be the temple that you have called us to be. Oh, I bless your church today with a new hunger and a new thirst for you, Jesus. And Lord, may we declare your message. We recognize that people don't want to be told what to do. We don't like to be told what to do. But would you go before us and soften hearts so that the message, the seed of this gospel might find fertile soil and may grow up and produce a harvest a hundredfold. And may we look back and revel in your goodness. Thank you for hearing our prayers today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We hope you've been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.